Hello and welcome to the Holiday Week edition of the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News every weekday morning. Well, I guess it's all the time, not just on the weekdays, because I'm here on the weekends sometimes as well. My name is Jason Luber, and today I have a very special interview. In just a bit, we'll have on Jason Torchinsky. And Jason is an author, he's a driving guy, he has a new book out, and it's called Robot Take the Wheel, The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. He has his own show on YouTube called Jason Drives, and he has an interesting take on cars and autonomy in this book. And so I want to dive into a lot of different uh, aspects of this uh, of the book and uh, about autonomous cars with him. And so it should be pretty fascinating, and I'll be hooking up with him uh, here, dialing that up, in just a minute. But first I wanted to address a story that happened uh, this past week. It all started when my wife's cousin, Connie Monsies, she sent me a Facebook message and some pictures of her... I guess I'll call this her adventure in the mud thanks to an epic Google Maps fail. Connie wrote in her Facebook message to me that she went to go pick up her husband Kevin from Denver International Airport and Peña Boulevard, that's the major road that goes out to Denver International, it was barely moving because of a crash. So she, as well as a lot of other drivers that had to go pick up somebody or or drop somebody off or, or was trying to catch a flight, went to their phone and dialed up Google Maps so they could find another way to get around over to the airport around this crash. Well, here is what happened to Connie in Connie's own words. So I went to pick my husband up from DIA and uh, there was a wreck on Pena and they asked, Google Maps told us to go take the tower exit. So I did because it was supposed to be half the time and it spit us out onto a dirt road and there were probably a hundred of us out there and it was a disaster. Um, at that point, it was beautiful. Nice sunny day, cool, like the last few days have been. Well, that was my thought was, well, all these other cars are in front of me, so it must be okay. So I just continued. You know, with all the rain we've had, the, it, was like a, it was like a road that a farmer would take across his field, and it got pretty muddy, and with our clay soil, it got pretty slick. And that's when I thought, oh, this was a bad decision. But I also didn't want to turn around because I didn't know if I would be able to get back on the track. And I knew I wouldn't because there was too many cars behind me. So I would have to drive just through the field. Total, there was over 100 cars out there. Just kept going. My car did pretty well. It's all-wheel drive. Um, we got to a place where there was a, like a ditch. And I was maybe three cars back when I could really see what it was. And I stopped because the cars in front of me were stopped and there was somebody stuck. So it was like, okay, what do we do? A lot of people had gotten out of their cars and walked forward to check it out. I sat there for a while, finally got out, um, got back in, rolled my windows down, and a man who had been up there walked back by and said, are you going to DIA? And I said, I am. He said, can I throw my bag in your car? I said, sure. So he got in. Pretty soon a woman who was about 20 came by and just stopped and said, can I get in your car? And so she went and got her car from her Uber driver, her bags, and got in the car. The Uber driver, he was stuck, completely stuck. So we discussed it for a while. The cars in front of me moved eventually, and um, we decided to go for it. So I made it across, you know, fishtailing some, but my all-wheel drive was handy. 
got across there, thought we were good to go, and then we got almost to Jackson Gap Road and realized there was another ditch to get up on the asphalt. And that one was worse, and so we sat for a while discussing that. Got out of the car again, figured out where to go, and um, finally did it. But thankfully there was this nice woman who was up on the road stopping traffic for when people were ready to gun it and go over. You know, everybody hops out and helps. Older guys saying, okay, this is how you need to drive in this, and it was, yes. So I took two people to the airport that I didn't know, made new friends. <laughs> no, I'm not beating myself up, but the question was, why did Google send us out there to begin with? And it just didn't make any sense. There was no turning back once you were there. It just was, here you go, go for it. <laughs> we were all like, what have we done? Yeah, it's just, and what do you do? Yes, I should have stayed on Pena. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so that was the interview we did with Connie. And she attached a couple of pictures with her message to me on Facebook. And the pictures really are great. They were showing all these people with their cars stuck in the mud. The people were looking at their cars, some with their hands on their head or, or in the air. It really is a picture of lots of frustrated people with with really no clue of, of how they're going to deal with this situation as they are in a really bad way. And I think it's the pictures that sold the story and, and made it a viral sensation because after our story, ABC News National called and they wanted to do more with it. And it wasn't just featured on ABC on their overnight show and on their podcast, but also Good Morning America featured it on a morning show. And then NBC News called, and she did an interview with the local NBC station. And she got calls from all over the place, and eventually she just said stop. She, she told us to say stop to all these inquiries. I think it was after uh, she, she, she stopped before she did NPR. She got called from some European outlets, and she just called it off. Um, I was even contacted by the Kim Commando Show. And even though I'm a fan of the Kim Commando show, uh, we had to turn them down, too, because Connie had pretty much just had enough. She's a simple person who was just bombarded by the media attention from this one story, and and she just wasn't able to keep handling it. She just wanted to, to, to call it off. But as you heard in the at the end of her interview, she said that Google Maps routed her and all those people down a road that was supposed to get her to another road. And it was supposed to connect her back over to the airport. The problem was that that road, 64th Avenue, where she was routed down, turned out to be a paved road that then quickly turned into a dirt road. So Google responded to ABC News, and they said, quote, While we always work to provide the best directions, issues can arise due to unforeseen circumstances. We encourage all drivers to follow local laws, stay attentive, and use their best judgment while driving, unquote. Well, that's, that's all good and well advice, but they never answered the question about why they had a road listed where a road really wasn't there. I had looked at Google Maps, and it did indicate there was a road there, but when you look at the satellite version of the Google Map, you really can see just a one-track dirt road through a field, and it's not really a majorly traveled or any traveled road at all, and when we had our reporter go out there, she said there was a road-closed sign that was all shot up and actually knocked over. So I think that was one of the problems is that people didn't either pay attention to the sign, see the sign, whatever, 
and they went and tried the road. And since then, Google has now taken that road and, and put it as closed from where it turns from paved to dirt. So they won't route you along there anymore. But pretty much what I said, because I was interviewed for this story as well, I said if you come across a crash and you're looking for a way around it, Google Maps is really a good guideline, but it's not a steadfast rule. You're, you, you are still the one driving. Google Maps is not driving. Google Maps is not perfect. You really need to know where you're going, and if it doesn't look like that's the way you should be going, you can always, because you have some levers and wheels at your control, to stop, to turn around and try again. That you're not a lemming, and you don't need to follow... Google Maps, exactly. You have the final say of where you're going. And you might be in an unfamiliar area or an unfamiliar city, but you can, with a Google Map, stop, zoom out a little bit, and look for another way around if it doesn't feel right. You, you can. You can do all these things. People are just so reliant right now on either their Google Maps or their Waze, and since, and since everybody is using them, they're all following along the same path, and unfortunately, sometimes that path leads you down the wrong way. As you heard Connie say, she was following the other people, and she thought, well, if they are going this way, I, I can go this way, even though they none, none of them should have ever gone that way. They should have stopped and, and turned around. I actually received a message from somebody who said they had that exact same direction, got to that point where it was the dirt road, stopped turned around, went down to a more paved road, and then continued on with no problem. That's what you should have done and not just followed the directions blindly. You, you unfortunately have to use some common sense, people. And if it looks like a dirt road, it looks like your car probably couldn't handle it, then turn around and, 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 and start again. Or go back to the traffic jam, and even though it's frustrating, you can wait there. At least you know you're on a good road. You could always look at the map. You could always zoom out more and find another way around it. You don't just have to watch the turn-by-turn -turn directions. You can always go back a step. It's okay. Now, I was interviewed, and when I was interviewed for the story, I, I had a bunch of sound bites that were, were taken out and put into the story, into the into the news package, which is the, the entire uh, story. And I have a sound bite that is taken off, and it said, it's a matter of people not knowing how to read a map and people relying blindly on their technology. Even though the phone is, is telling me to go this way, it's not always the best idea. And I think people have resonated with that, at least most people who, who try to get people off of their phones and, and to know where they're going and use some common sense, because I heard from some of those people as well here this week. Because the story was picked up by CNN, and that's when it really, really took off. It was shown everywhere. I heard from people in Europe. My daughter has a friend who is originally from Switzerland, and she's back there for the summer. She emailed my wife saying that they saw me on their news channel there in Switzerland uh, because of this story. So when it's on CNN, it goes everywhere, not only in the United States, but around the world. So 
this story has resonated with a lot of people because Google Maps is so popular and so many people use it and rely on it. And it was a good reminder, I guess, for people to get your head out of your phone and look around and use your best common sense. That's That was my whole point in this thing. So, yeah, it was a major fail from Google Maps in this one instance, and it'll probably happen again. And when it does, I, I hope people don't get stuck in the mud, but they probably will. And I hope that we listen to my advice and we turn around and don't drown. Uh, turn around and, and just look at your Google Maps and zoom out a little bit. It's, I guess it's easy for, that's what my wife was saying. It's easy for me to say this because this is what I do. This is my life. This, I, I, I am so uh, hyper map focused that it, it's easy for me, but for everybody else, it's not that easy. It can be. It really can be that easy. I'm just trying to help people get through it. Anyway, that that was the big thing that happened in my life over the week. But that isn't what I wanted the show to be about. I wanted to dedicate the show today to looking to the future of cars and also the past of cars. And what better way to do that is to talk with Jason Torchinsky. He's the senior editor of Jalopnik, a producer of Jay Leno's Garage. He's the star of his own show called Jason Drives, which features Jason driving obscure cars. Jason is also the author of a new book that we'll get into. It's called Robot Take the Wheel. The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. Jason, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. So before we dive into the book, let's find out a bit about Jason. What made you so interested in cars? Um, you know, I've always liked cars ever since I was a little kid. And I'm not, not 100% sure what it was that really drew me into cars in general. But I know... So as a kid, my dad had an old 68 Beetle, and that was the first car that I really, really, you know, fell in love with and got obsessed by, where were Beetles. And the Beetle was kind of the, uh, that was what really sparked my interest in cars. And a Beetle is also, at least in the U.S., was a very good gateway drug into uh, weird cars, because it was different than most cars. The engine was in a different place. It was cooled by a different molecule, and it, you know, it just did everything its own little way that caused you to start doing some research and realizing there were all kinds of other ways to do things. And then once you go down that road, you know, you're, you're doomed. And then you're like me and you've got a, a Nissan Pow and a Yugo sitting in your driveway. <laughs> well, and you know, those are the kind of cars that you with a, with a buddy like I have helped take the engine out of the bug, put it in his living room and then work on it there in the comfort of your own house. Oh, sure. I've, I've swapped the engine in my Beetle. I have an old 73 Beetle and it's uh, it's you could do it. It's not that big, and you you take it out by lifting the body off it. So, yeah, yeah, I, I totally see that. I read that at one point early on, you would teach kids how to hotwire a car. What were some of the easiest cars that you found to hotwire? Well, pretty much anything before like 1990 is not that hard, really. And um, yeah, the, the the whole I should explain a little more what I was doing. It was I had this plan for. I wanted to give people the opportunity to do bad things in safe contexts. So the way we did it is I taught like a class for kids, especially how to how to break into a car, how to break out of a car trunk and how to hotwire a car. And I did it with a group in L.A. called Machine Project that I used to do a lot of work with. Um, and it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we would, you know, like it's 
to hotwire like a pre you know like a early 90s car and then back it's really just three wires really you just need the you know the ignition wire the battery wire a ground and you know it, there's there's not a lot to it and the kids love it because it makes sparks and then you hear the car turn on and you know it's just fun and it was a good way to teach them about how things worked it was just a good um, method to get them actually interested in the mechanics of what's actually going on there. The first car that I ever bought was a 75 Plymouth Fury, and oh, yeah. I actually bought it from my vice principal of the high school I was going to, and she sold it to me for $250, and then I had to put a $350 transmission in it to get it to go. Um, but those <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were great cars because they did. They would just last and last, and they were actually a lot of fun, those 1975 vintage cars. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, that was... Um... The 70s were a weird era. They were, uh, you know, maybe some of the, well, I don't know if that was the start of what they call the malaise era, but uh, the 70s, you know, they were grappling with a lot of, like, new emission stuff and things were, you know, they were still pretty straightforward and simple and they weren't getting as complicated as, you know, by the 80s you had all kinds of fuel injection computers and things like that. It was kind of the last decade of really dirt simple cars. On your show called Jason Drives that people can see on YouTube, you drive some very unique and obviously odd cars. What are some of the more memorable ones that just come to the top of your head? Well, probably the most most memorable is the, the Hoffman, which is arguably the worst car ever designed and built. It was a uh, this one-off from the early 50s, built in Germany right after the war. Beautiful craftsmanship on the car, but every decision the guy made who designed it was the worst decision you could make. It's almost undrivable. It's only six and a half horsepower. You know, it's scarier than 600 horsepower cars I've driven. It's, you know, it's, it's terrible. Like the rear wheels steer and the, the, the track is actually wider than the wheelbase. It's like unstable. You can almost flip it when it's parked. But definitely the Hoffman. That was a fascinating machine. Also, I've driven amphibious cars, uh, amphicars and hobby cars, which are, of course, amazing. They're, both, they're, they're bad at being both cars and boats, but that moment when you actually drive it into the water, it's the best thing in the world, uh, that transition point. And I've driven uh, propeller-driven cars, which are crazy. There's one called the Helicron I drove. Um, those things are also a terrible idea, but just amazing to actually try out. Now, Jerry Seinfeld, on his car show, I'm sure that the owners know that he would make good if something goes wrong when he's driving around with their real expensive classic cars. How do you get a hold of these cars to drive, and are the owners nervous when you ask them to drive it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I don't have the replaced car resources of Jerry Seinfeld, but luckily I have some generous uh, friends and you know like a lot of these we drive are through the lane motor museum in nashville which is one of the best car museums in america and i recommend anybody to go visit it they let me drive pretty much anything they have and they've been really you know they have a really good attitude towards all their cars in fact the amphibious car that they let me drive uh like earlier this year or late last year actually sank <laughs> and they <laughs> they brought it back up they're they're not afraid of getting things a little dirty or messed up um so you know if you have friends like that who are just willing to just see these we're just happy to see the cars getting used then that's how or sometimes uh people just really want the cars to get the attention they think they deserve so they're willing to take the risk and i'm always as careful as i can be i never forget i'm driving somebody else's car so i desperately try not to do anything stupid in them um in fact we just did uh for this series of jason drives we 
we did a whole bunch of shows with uh, Bo Bachman, who uh, runs Galpin Motors out in L.A., and he has a great collection of cars. And we were doing an episode of micro cars. We had a whole bunch of interesting ones. And uh, Bo actually flipped a very rare French micro car on its side. All I could think about was how happy I was that it wasn't me who did that. Exactly. My, you know, it makes me think of my trio of classic cars that I would like to own. Either the AMC Pacer or Gremlin. Mm. I guess they're basically the same car, different windows. The VW. Oh no, they're very different, but they're both wonderful choices. The VW Thing Convertible or yes. the 1961 Corvette. Of those three or four, I guess, which one would you like to take? I like a lot of those cars. I, I think it'd be between. The Pacer and the Thing for me, I really love things. I'm a VW, like an air-cooled VW guy from a long time back, so I have a lot of fondness for those, and they're amazing, and they're a lot of fun, too. But there is something about the Pacer that I really like. I, you know, the Pacer's design, a guy named Dick Teague designed it. I, um, it was originally designed to be much weirder. It was supposed to have a mid-mounted rotary wankle engine, and <laughs> rear the rear seats were facing backwards, it was a very strange idea, and it still had that kind of fishbowl design. But then they later had to like dial it back and use you know the straight six engine that AMC just had. But it's still an amazing car. And the Porsche 928. Not many people know this, but the designer of the Porsche 928 admitted that he was looking at the back of the Pacer when he designed that car. And if you look at the two of them together, it's pretty clear that that's true. Interesting. That's interesting stuff. We're talking to Jason Torchinsky about uh, many things car-related and your book called Robot Take the Wheel, The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. There is a part of your book where you write, this is an exciting era we're in. Autonomy will be the biggest shift in how we interact with our cars in decades, and it's going to reshape how we transport ourselves more than any other advancement in recent memory. It's going to end up far, far weirder than we think, so we may as all well get a head start and think some things through. Don't worry, it'll be fun. A couple of things in there I wanted to talk about. We both definitely agree that autonomy will be the next big shift in the way we interact with uh, not just cars, but I think in transportation in general. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely will be. I also think it's not quite as close as everybody seems to think. It's, it, it's very hard to do to get full level five autonomy, and Contrary to what a lot of people think right now, there are no fully autonomous cars on the market today. Um, They don't exist, and I think there's a lot of confusion out there about that. In fact, there was a study late last year that found like 71% of the people of people globally actually think you can just go out and buy a fully autonomous car today. You can't. I think part of the problem is companies like Tesla are using words that kind of obscure what their cars are actually doing, and it's definitely confusing. So... It's going to be a huge shift. Um, I think there's always going to be a place for human-driven cars, though. And I don't think they're going to go away. But autonomy is coming. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how soon, but it will be there. Yeah, I, I'm thinking the same thing, that it could be a lot of years down the road. You actually reference what you think is the first autonomous vehicle. I'll get to that in just a second. But you also said there in that statement that autonomy will be far weirder than we think. What do you think oh, yeah. is going to get weird? For one thing, I, I think considering autonomous vehicles as still cars is going to prove to be a mistake. They're they're more like robots than cars. They're going to be transportation robots, and that means all kinds of things are going to be different. The way 
you know, I in the book I talk about the car as kind of a body prosthetic. You make physical actions, and then the car's mechanical systems kind of magnify them for you to move and drive. This is going to be different. This is going to be closer to how it was to some degree when we had horses and carriages, and that what we're doing, you know we're being freed from the responsibility of keeping in a lane and our motions controlling a car. And that's going to transform what a car is. It's going to be something maybe we can use without even being in it. They're going to become errand robots and they're going to, you know, we may put your dog in there and send it to the vet. And, you know, we have to deal with the ethics of the car itself because it's going to be making decisions and it has the potential to make mistakes or do things maybe far beyond what we're thinking now. I mean, once these things are independent moving things and can make decisions, the idea of them as just a car becomes kind of quaint and strange because they're going to be a hell of a lot more than that. And, you know, in the book, I outline all kinds of weird ways this could go. And believe me, it's it's definitely going to get weird. And, and you reference in your book that you say the horse is really the first autonomous vehicle. I, I think it's Herbie the love bug. But what, but what you said about horses is that they became semi-autonomous when we hooked up a harness and a buggy to them. And back then there yeah. were dozens of companies, you know, that, that, that made buggy whips. And each company said that theirs was the best. And then Henry Ford came along and, and, and with, with his cars. And they, then they started out selling buggies. And, and you really didn't need buggy whips and horses and the whole thing. And, and at one point, there was one company that was left that was like the best buggy whip company in the entire world. But eventually it closed down. I think... I think some of these autonomous cars eventually will put some companies out of business. Or the companies will have to adapt, certainly. Um, and if, you know, for some companies, you know, I feel like when autonomous cars become common, there will be no reason to physically human drive a boring car. So companies like Morgan or Lotus may find themselves with a weird little resurgence because why would you buy a human-driven Camry if there's autonomous options? If you're going to drive, it's got to be something engaging. So I think they'll adapt. And regarding you know horses as autonomous, I think a horse and buggy is a semi-autonomous car because you give it direction input to some degree via the reins, but you're not telling the horse how to keep in a lane, how to avoid obstacles, how to stop if something jumps out in front of it. The horse handles all that. You're not really driving. You're guiding at best. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing with autonomous cars. And even, you know, there are cases where the horse will learn a route so well it can just kind of come back on its own. So we may come to a point where human driving is this weird blip in history where we've been dealing with these semi-autonomous things. And then for a couple hundred years, we did it all on our own. And then we went back to handing that responsibility off to something else. But I think we already have some semi-autonomy with, with one-click windows and cruise control and the auto-on headlights. I, I think sure. this is the way that we get to that full autonomy. Well, we're definitely on the way. And yes, and cruise, you know, I, I kind of list like a timeline of these things, you know, cruise control being an early thing. I consider trains are semi-autonomous vehicles. A train operator doesn't steer because there is a mechanism in place to handle the steering and route guidance, which are the rail network. So a train is a semi-autonomous vehicle. Um, we've been building semi-autonomous vehicles for quite a while. And yeah, you know, cruise control and, you know, the level two autonomous systems like autopilot that Tesla has, uh, these are all things that are definitely taking away some of the work of driving from us. And, you know, it's uh, we're in a strange period now because I'm not a fan of the level two autonomy just because I don't think humans are really 
well equipped to deal with something that almost does a job but still requires you to be aware and ready to take over at a moment's notice. And I think that's going to be a weird transition. At some point, there will be like we have a Tesla where the driver can at any point all of a sudden jump in if, if, if the case is needed. But there might be a point where we are farther down the road where it is mostly autonomous and then that driver, let's say it's my wife, doesn't really have any comfort level jumping in and then rescuing the car from itself. Um, and, and I think maybe it, it would come down to which drivers are able to do that and which and some aren't. Well, I think it's that's the whole problem with these types of current autonomous, semi-autonomous systems we have. So for Teslas now, it's Teslas and like GM Super Cruise and ProPilot from Nissan, all these semi-autonomous systems are basically the same in the sense that you have to have your hands either on the wheel or your eyes watching the road. Different systems require different things. You have to be ready to take over for the car pretty much instantly, which means you have to be engaged in the process of driving without really driving. And it's a strange gray area. And, you know, for sometimes it works great. And that's when you see people like sleeping at the wheel of a Tesla. And I guess they, they're mostly fine until something goes very wrong. Then they end up dead, as has happened a couple times. You know, and, and it's and the idea that you can just jump in and take over in a hard in a situation where it's tough when the car has been doing 80 plus percent of the work for you, I don't think is realistic to the way that human brains work. Plus, there's going to be an erosion of driver skill and. You know, if you use this most of the time, and let's say you're using a semi-autonomous system for most of your driving, and you're just not going to be that equipped to take over when something goes wrong. It's it's a fundamentally flawed method of doing autonomy, I think, the semi-autonomy. And I think, um, I, I think, you know, frankly, it's it, it we'd be better off if we, you know, did all the research and development, but didn't really deploy things until they were you know, level four or better, where the, or even level three, which allows for the car to handle a situation where it's confused or doesn't know what to do, where it can at least safely pull over instead of requiring the human who may be doing God knows what uh, to jump in and take over. But isn't that going to be also an inherent problem where you have semi or nearly full autonomous cars mixed with humans who are you know skittish and and do crazy weird things sometimes i think yeah there's there's going to be some weirdness when we're mixing around and i think the solution there is communication um they've already been talking about these car-to-car communication systems that you know when people imagine uh, an autonomous future all the cars are going to be talking to each other because that'll help you manage traffic it'll let the cars know what's going on so I was proposing in the book, I want to still drive my old piece of crap, you know, archaic cars, even in an era when there's autonomous vehicles everywhere. And I would be willing to do something like, you know, um, connect some kind of uh, transponder system to my car that broadcasts information of both like there's a human driver here at these GPS coordinates. His steering angle input is this. The throttle input is this. Uh, speed is this, that kind of thing. So all the autonomous cars that are around me have all the information they need to make their decisions effectively, just like they would be sharing that information with one another. They're going to be telling each other, I'm going this fast at this heading to this destination. Uh, My steering angle is this. The weather conditions are this. So they can all plan. This kind of communication is going to have to happen at some point if we want a really effective full network like big picture network of autonomous vehicles and i think human driven cars can fit into that 
they just have to have a system to announce that they exist at a given location and what they're doing. I'm speaking with Jason Torchinsky, the book Robot Take the Wheel, The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. I think, Jason, 5G is actually going to help us get to that point because right now with our 4G technology, the the latency is too slow. We can't have cars talking to each other in real time or be able to hook up a system like you're talking about in a human driving car that can then relay all that information at an instant to all the other self-driving cars that are trying to make decisions every nanosecond. Yeah, I mean, we will require good network bandwidth to to make these things happen, but you know, I, I feel like most of the companies developing these things are, you know, they're planning on that. There are already attempts to get standards set up for car-to-car communication and that kind of thing. Now, the panacea of autonomy is that traffic congestion is going to be far less than it is now. And for, let's say, California, that would be revolutionary for them. Imagine the increase in productivity and time spent at the beach if you could get around there like you can if you were living in Nebraska. Do you think congestion will get better or maybe even worse with autonomy i think it could go either way to be honest um yes traffic could get better especially if we're talking about let's say there is a robust car-to-car communication system traffic is handled much more efficiently um there's shared vehicles moving people around but at the same time we may find i think there's still going to be private ownership of cars including autonomous cars and, you know, where I suggest using cars as like unmanned errand robots to do all the things you don't want to do in the book. Because if you have an autonomous car, why would you go to the drugstore to buy your wife tampons at midnight? You wouldn't. <laughs> you would just send the robot out to do it. So it's possible you'd get even more traffic from people using their cars to run errands. Or maybe there'd be a whole subcategory of cars that could never carry people but were just designed for cargo use or errand use or that or delivery and that kind of thing so we could also see an explosion in a in varieties of vehicles on the road as well as more efficient use of traffic and the road and the vehicles themselves so i think it's going to be interesting i think the nature of things is to always expand to fill the capacity that we have and i don't necessarily know that that's going to change even when most vehicles are autonomous um well, certainly, but hopefully the upside is we'll be able to get more done and do more interesting things. But I don't know if I'm confident enough to say that this is going to totally solve traffic because fundamentally it's still individual vehicles on the road and that is what traffic is. You know, speaking of rural areas, with the rise of self-driving vehicles, it would really be only a matter of time before there's a country song where the guy's truck leaves him. Sure, of course. <laughs> Your painful, painful thing takes the dog with him too, probably. Probably. Do you have a whole section in your book about the ethics of these vehicles? And I've talked about this here on the show in the past that these vehicles are going to be smart. They're going to be, as you say, robotic in their thinking. And I don't know if you recall that scenario in the movie iRobot where the robot had to choose between the lesser of two evils, save this person who has a better chance of survival. So think about a car that might have to decide between two new no-win outcomes. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, this is going to be a whole can of worms with this stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, researchers like to talk about the trolley problem. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... It's like a classic ethical dilemma. Um, 
where like there's an out of control trolley and you have control of a switch where you can split the, you know, like which track the trolley is going on. Um, one would send it into like a, a group of children and one would send it into a, like a group of old people or maybe a smaller group of old people. And, you know, trying to make these decisions, like, do you, like, how do you decide the lesser of evils in these things? Like, is an autonomous car, you know, going to find itself in a position where it's going to crash into something, but it can pick between two choices? You know, so there's a lot of speculation from people about, you know, and there was a big MIT study asking people what they thought. And you saw regional differences where Asian countries tended to preserve older people more so than Western countries. There's a lot of problems with all these things because I don't necessarily know that these cars are going to have that kind of information. Like, are they going to know the ages and amount of people in every single car that's going around? And there's there's all kinds of privacy issues. If that's the case, um, the potential for abuse is out there. Like, is there going to be a point where cars are going to make decisions on who to kill based on your credit rating or something like that? Um, you know, is, you know... How is it going to make these decisions, and is it going to have the information it needs? Honestly, I think it's probably not going to come up that much because these these situations happen so quickly, and something as cut and dry as the trolley problem isn't a likely scenario. But we're still going to have to come up with a set of guidelines or rules. Or, or and- is your car going to? prefer you over another vehicle let's say there's let's say it's an icy road and you're in michigan and there's a you're, you're coming over the crest of a hill and the van is coming on the other way and and at no fault of the van and the autonomy uh system that it's driving all of a sudden it hits a, a sheet of black ice it starts losing control and comes at your car does your car then have to decide whether it it can already predict that somebody's going to die because it can just understand the complexity of what's going to happen is it going to protect you and try to save your life or going to protect the people in the other car and protect their life at your risk? I mean, is it going to protect itself or protect, you know, life or property or, you know, how is all that going to sort out? And that may be the kind of thing that car makers would use for competitive differences. Maybe, you know, Mercedes would advertise their their cars are programmed to protect the occupants over everyone else. And Subaru would advertise their goal is to minimize loss of life in general, even if it means sacrificing yourself. Um, I don't know. And would people, you know, it's, would people buy a car that would be willing to sacrifice themselves for a greater good? Maybe some people would, I don't know. Um, I think in the end, we'll have to have some sort of overarching standard for this to make sense. Um, you know, if every car is going to try to optimize the occupants of its car of the of its own car, you know that may not provide the best outcomes in all situations. Um, yeah, because who 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 would make these decisions after all? Would it be legislators of each state, the federal government? Would it be the car makers, the programmers? You know who you know who's getting involved in this in this decision making? Uh, you know, Germany's kind of taken, um, and in my book, I actually think I published this, Germany actually kind of took a lead in some of this stuff and, do, and did come up with a set of autonomous car ethic rules that they'd like to see implemented. And I think it's going to have to be at roughly that kind of level. I don't think it can be on a state level because we travel in between states. And unless the car is going to download a new set of ethical rules as it crosses borders, which I guess is possible, um then you'd think you'd want something that's a little more uh, global. I mean, ideally, 
we'd have a global standard, I think, um, just because that would make everything a lot easier. But knowing how the car industry works, I don't feel like that's too likely. Then you have to think about litigation that could go mm-hmm. on, and are they going to go after the car maker? Are they going to go after the programmer of the program that's operating the car? Are they going to go after the cities involved because the infrastructure wasn't right or the or the network that the car is communicating with? It seems like the lawyers would have a field day with where they could, who they could sue. Yeah, and I think they will. And I think there's going to have to be, you know, there's going to have to be some sort of hierarchy of blame established that everybody agrees to. Um, and, you know, otherwise, it'll, you know, every wreck will be you know, an absolute nightmare of litigation. Um, I don't think anyone really knows what the answer to any of this is. We've never really had a situation. I mean, this to think, if you think about it, this will be the first mass deployment of robots into human society, at least robots that are um, capable of actually ending a human life, not like a Roomba or something like that. I mean, maybe your room gets pissed at you enough, it could you know, stab you or something. But in general, this will be the first real mass deployment of a robot with that's capable of life or death decisions into mainstream society and since we've never had that before i think we're going to be coming up with a lot of we're going to be take some time to actually figure out what all the rules are and what actually makes sense and i don't see it as being quick or easy i think there'll be a lot of back and forth and you know a lot of compromise frankly i don't think we're going to be able to come up with something that's going to make everybody happy but I'm pretty sure we'll come up with something that works good enough. Yeah, and it seems like we're trying to get to autonomy almost too quickly. Do you think this is moving too quickly, or should we stop for a second, wait for the uh, the legislation and the laws and the regulations to catch up with where the companies are with the technology? Yeah, I don't think so, because I, I don't think it's happening that fast. I think full level 5 autonomy is dealing with the chaos of the real world is still a good ways out. There's still so much to do. Um, I think maybe some legislation for what we're dealing with the current level of level two autonomy, the stuff that we're working through as we try to work up to the full level five, it may, maybe there's room for more, more legislation there. Um, but I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't think we're going to have full autonomy so quick that we can't figure it out. I think we need to go through this kind of growing pains period. I think we need to work with the semi-autonomous, you know, machines and companies that we have now, uh, start playing with the ideas of, you know, blame litigation, uh, ethical rules and things like that. This is, we should just start, we just got to jump in. You know, I don't know if, if stopping and trying to artificially get things set up is really going to work. I feel like there's so many things we can't predict about how these things will interact with the real world that to some degree we got to we got to be ready for it to be a little messy and just kind of work through it as it's happening. I'm speaking with Jason Torchinsky, the book Robot Take the Wheel, The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. And I think, Jason, that is one of the aspects of autonomy is going to be lost is that art of driving. I think what will be lost is not only that, but the love of the car. It doesn't really matter if you're driving a Chevy Cruze or a, or a Camaro or a Maserati or, or, or that Volkswagen thing, convertible. I think the love of owning your own car could eventually die. I don't know about this because there's a lot, you know, you get a lot of, a lot of the thinking about autonomous cars is the idea that they're going to become shared vehicles and you won't own your own car. 
And I don't know if I fully believe that. I think in certain places that is going to be true. But these are mostly denser urban places where people are already not um, that vested in car ownership. I think, you know, cities like New York or San Francisco, yes, almost definitely shared will be the way to go. But in more rural areas or even in L.A. where ownership of a car is a bigger deal, it's your mobile base, it's where you keep all your crap. If you have kids, cars are always full of stuff that you have as part of the the equipment of running a life and raising a child. And I, I think people like having their own personal vehicle for a lot of different reasons. And I don't necessarily see autonomy as making that go away. Plus, I think we're going to have a relationship with a car that's going to be even a little you know, I think you can still own a personal car if it's autonomous, even if you don't drive it. And the relationship you have with it will be different. Maybe there'll be a little less of your own identity tied into it. Um, you know, like in the way uh, a car is now, like, you know, uh, the reason cars are irrational things. We buy them for crazy, irrational reasons. You know, nobody needs a car with five or 600 horsepower if we're being rational. In fact, one of my daily drivers has 52 horsepower and I get a bomb just fine. <laughs> so, you know, we don't need that kind of thing, but we like it in a lot of ways because of what it says about us. We drive it, we can command this kind of power and that is something we want people to know about. When you're no longer driving, that relationship changes. I have a chapter in here where I ask like, will they be like your dog? Because uh, a robot is going to be there's going to be some kind of personality that we're going to anthropomorphize these things it's going to behave in certain ways that we will translate as personality whether it's there or not it's something that people do so i think we'll get relationships with our cars that are still strong but are a little different than what they are now they'll be a little more about the car as an independent being in a way almost vaguely pet-like in a strange way, as opposed to an extension of ourselves like a human-driven car is now. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think I agree that we're going to lose our love of cars. I think it's going to shift into something a little bit different. And I also don't believe everybody's going to want a shared car because I just don't think that's how the world works, especially in less dense population areas. Yeah, I, I definitely don't want a shared car. And you made me think about my first car, that uh, Plymouth Fury, and and how I named it. I named it OJ because when I was growing up in the you know seventies and early eighties, OJ was you know before the the whole murder deal. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a great running back, and and, sure. and when I was growing up in Detroit, you know, he was running for the Bills, and he, he was he was a pretty good player. And you saw him jumping through uh, airports, running. Over over, uh, what, American tourist luggage. So you, 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 people have a love affair with their car where they name it, and you said, make it an extension of themselves. And I, I just don't see that personality with most of these newer cars and with eventual autonomous cars in the future. Well, I think it's, it's hard for us to perceive. There are people who still have a lot of, uh, you know, who still name their cars, even boring-ass Camrys that you and I maybe couldn't give a damn about. Those things mean a lot to people because they become very personal and, you know, they they give them names still. They, they ascribe traits to them. They still establish bonds with these cars. Even if they're boring cars, it's still their cars. Um, you know, like I said, it's not rational the way we deal with our cars. And... I don't see why that would change when we have autonomous cars necessarily. And I don't think there's any reason why an autonomous car has to be 
some boring people moving pod. And I don't think the way the car industry has been progressing over the past hundred plus years would suggest that that would make sense. People still want to buy cars for their irrational reasons of styling and status. And it's closer to fashion than it is to the way you buy, say, like a refrigerator. Like James Bond. What would James Bond be without the flair of his cars? You you wouldn't have Fast and the Furious movies. Those movies wouldn't exist. No, unless there's subcultures that will spring up of people who modify autonomous cars to go faster and to do stranger things. Um, All these things could still happen, just in slightly different ways. You know, the idea of Bond having an autonomous car would make perfect sense. I mean, you know, it would be more like a like a partner. It'd be, you know, think more Kit and Knight Rider (laughs) and that kind of thing. Like, you know, that was an autonomous car and it had plenty of personality. And, you know, it was... I you know I don't necessarily think this means everything's going to become an anonymous pod. Even though you look around at cars now and everything's, you know, black, white or silver SUVs, but there's still standouts and people still I don't know, people are still going to give a damn about that kind of thing. I don't think that's just going to go away. And that's another uh issue that you address in your book that autonomous cars they won't necessarily have to look like the cars we drive today. How do you think they could look in the future? Well, I mean, yeah, the way we had designed cars now, with two rows of seats facing forward, like church pews, and you're looking at the front windshield, there's no need for that if you're not actually driving. Like, the way cars are designed now, it's to, it's to make driving better. But if you're not doing it, what you really want is just a space, an enclosed private space, a mobile room, really, is what you're going to want out of an autonomous car because you're going to be doing everything but driving inside it. And you may not want to even be sitting up. You may want to be sleeping. You may want to be laying down. You may want to be around a table. Um, and I think these you know, cars are going to get kind of exterior design-wise is going to look more van-like because that's just the most efficient way to enclose a volume. And we're going to see interiors becoming far more important because that's where you're going to be in an autonomous car and you're going to be since you're not driving everything else matters aerodynamics should still play a significant role i would think in the design of of these vehicles absolutely but you know there's no reason why you can't have a you know we're already designing aerodynamic vans um that's not a problem you could you know it can definitely be done um so you're gonna have you know streamlined van-like shapes i think uh, when the goal is going to be maximize interior volume, because why wouldn't you? <laughs> like, if you're going to be not driving in an enclosed space, why wouldn't you want to have as much space as you possibly can have in the given area? But if we're um, also trying to get away from using more fuel and, and let's say oil in the next 50 years and go more electric, how about that fuel efficiency, though? That still has to be an option because you have some vans that have a lot of weight to them and you start putting beds and couches and uh, computers and, and uh, surround sound in there. It starts to weight them down. Sure, these will be heavier, but that doesn't necessarily mean... I don't think they have to be any less efficient than any other car, really. The Japanese have been doing this type of thing for decades. If you look at um, the K-class cars that tend to be around Tokyo, where space is at a premium, they have a lot of uh, boxy-like designs that are incredibly fuel-efficient that maximize the interior volume. And I think we'll see things like that. Just because you're maximizing the volume doesn't mean everything has to be huge, either. You can have a small car that still encloses a good amount of space, and we're talking about mostly empty space as opposed to, like, packing it full of stuff. They're already going to be heavier autonomous cars because they require a lot of equipment. And chances are they'll be electric, 
because that's you know a major way that everything seems to be going anyway. Um, and batteries are already very heavy. So, you know, the, the range is going to be important. Um, all these things are going to be still important, efficiency and range, but I don't see that as being a real impediment to maximizing interior volume as well or how an interior is appointed. Uh, those things, you know, and there will be some bare bones type things as well, especially in shared cars where it's basically just, you know, a box with seats in it, an aer aerodynamic box with seats in it. But uh, if you're going to have a private one, you know, why why wouldn't you want more out of it? You know, unless depends on your budget, of course, as well. I'm sure there's going to be a uh, scale of these things for cheaper ones with less in them and fancier ones, or maybe they'll be more modular and upgradable. It's hard to tell. There may be cargo-only ones, too. Well, and ones that are, let's say, a hotel. You could have, instead of yeah. checking into a hotel and going to a hotel room, you could check yeah. into a hotel room that's on wheels that goes or uh, that drives around to a place and then is stored in a city, let's say, like a giant erector set that's empty, that the your driving hotel room is then stored in this uh, empty building facility, and then you get you stay in your hotel room the whole time, and then you're off to the beach still in your hotel room. Sure. I mean, this could be an alternative to flying even at some point. You know, if, you, if you're if you not having to drive and you can just sleep, it'd be kind of like a sleeper car on a train, but faster and easier and more, you know, on your schedule instead of, uh, you know, a massive train schedule. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's really all kinds of ways this can go. Once we accept that these are no longer really cars, uh, the options, you know, the options really start to grow. So this won't be the end then of the road trip. I don't see why it would. Why would it? Like, if anything, it might make more road trips because it's going to be even easier. And the time you spend in the car can be, you know, it's time you would spend you know, like you would almost anywhere in, indoors. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I had the owner of a company called Native Camper Vans. They're a Colorado company. And they rent out these camper vans that they've retrofitted for people who want to take these comfortable road trips around uh, the West here. I, I would think that autonomy might help them or it could actually kill them at the same time. I think autonomy and RVs is a great combination. I like when I moved my family from Los Angeles to North Carolina, I bought this old 77 Dodge RV and, you know, we drove it. And in the back, my wife and kid, you know, were hanging out and playing video games and lounging around and making snacks. You know, I, I did all the driving because it was kind of a pain and my wife didn't like driving it. But I would have loved it if that thing, especially on like the big, boring highway stretches through, you know, uh, Oklahoma could be autonomous. That would have been great. I would have gone to the back with them. So I think, yeah, like autonomous RVs make a lot of sense. You have a chapter in your book called The Death of the Journey. So this really isn't going to be the death of a journey. It's just changing the way you take that journey. The point of the death of the journey has to do with more about engagement. Um, you're still traveling. But, okay, think about it this way. When you're traveling in an autonomous car on a road trip, you get in at one location. You do anything inside the car. Let's say it is like one of these RVs. You spend all the time watching, you know, catching, binge-watching Game of Thrones and playing video games or whatever, and then you get off at your destination. So what you've got is effectively like clunky teleportation. It's no longer a journey. You get in one place, you get off at another. Same with like air travel. When you drive yourself, it's a real journey because you are engaged the entire way. 
you literally have to be engaged. You see everything change. You see the landscape change. You're watching through that windshield throughout your entire trip. You're, in, you're stopping to get fuel. You're looking around. You're watching as you drive. You see the culture change. You, If you listen to local radio, you can hear the stations change. You can watch cities slowly fade into rural countryside and then grow back into cities again. You're engaged the whole time. It's an actual journey through an entire distance because you have to be aware of what's going on the entire thousand miles that you're going in an autonomous vehicle you get in one place and you get off at another it's digital it's not analog like uh like a regular road trip is so that's what i mean by death of the journey we're still going to go places in autonomous cars but we're not going to journey places we're going to we're going to go point to point as opposed to going literally from here through everything to there that's what's going to change so is this the end then of route 66 well route 66 has been gone already <laughs> basically but i mean it's going to be the end of all of all the highways i mean route 66 gets a lot of nostalgia and stuff like that but it still exists you can take back roads wherever you want that's the that's the nice thing like if you want to drive on back roads you can still do that and you know, I have old slow cars, and sometimes I choose to do that just to keep them off the highways. And but even on the highway, you're still, you know, you're still reading signs and seeing other cars and looking at the landscape. And again, you're engaged in that journey. And when you don't have to drive yourself, you, you, that's not going to happen. And it also has to do with the idea of wandering. You can in a, a human-driven car, you can say, let's. Let's drive over here and just see what we find. But in an autonomous car, you get in, and the first question that comes up is, where do you want to go? So it's always going to require a destination. Often we drive without a destination in mind, and losing that, I think, is a problem. I think there may be ways we can synthesize that in an autonomous car and kind of fake it, but I don't know if it'll ever really be the, the same. So maybe this leads to higher speed interstates. Very likely. I mean, if, if you're having mostly autonomous travel on the interstate and the cars are capable of it, then sure, maybe you have, you know, much higher speeds than we're used to, Autobahn style, you know, prudent and safe speeds. And you can just crank out at 140, 150 miles an hour if you want. Um, I think that could definitely happen. I'm speaking with Jason Torchinsky about his book, Robot Take the Wheel, The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. We've seen already some autonomous semi-trucks driving by themselves here in Colorado. We saw one of the first tests of this where it was a beer truck going from Fort Collins down here to Denver. What do you think about how they're using uh, autonomy in truck deliveries? I think that's a sensible place for it because highway driving is inherently simpler than city driving for autonomous vehicles. Um, and I know a lot of people are worried about that could mean truckers would lose jobs, but I don't know if I believe that because I think you're always going to want some human in that cab just to kind of keep an eye on things. Also, maybe to take over when it gets into a city or do some of the more complex maneuvers that maybe the systems aren't really ready for and to help unload, manage all of the other business of being in a truck. So I, I, I think it's a good use of autonomy and trucking and delivery and all these things actually make a lot of sense for, for automation. I, but I don't necessarily think that automation means uh, loss of all these trucking jobs. I think it means changes to the jobs, but maybe not necessarily for the worse. So where do we go from here? What's next down the autonomy road? Well, I think there's going to be more and more development of 
of these vehicles to become more and more autonomous. You know, there's still a lot of work to do. On the consumer side, I think we'll see uh, much more mass deployment of level two autonomous systems for better or worse. Uh, even right now, you know, almost every company has at the very least uh, like lane keep assist and dynamic cruise. And both of those are like, maybe they're not full level two, but they're like level one and a half. Um, and I think we're going to see that spread out throughout the industry much more. I think we're going to have to start dealing with the issues that all of that is going to bring up. And um, I think, you know, it's going to be a dual fort kind of thing. We're going to be doing technical development and social, cultural, and legal development kind of all at the same time. And I think it's just going to be a process. I don't think there's there's no real rule book for what we're doing yet. We're just figuring it out. And I don't think there's any magic bullet or way to do it other than just to do what we're doing right now, which is diving in and seeing what happens. And finally from me, did you do anything special for National Autonomy Vehicle Day? Of course. I, uh, <laughs> we had a, our National Autonomous <laughs> Cake. We had an autonomous cake and a robot designed to consume the cake. Perfect. Uh, and so I just locked them up in a room, and apparently that all worked out just fine. And, yeah, it was, of course, magical. And, yeah, happy Autonomous Vehicle Day to you. There you go. We <laughs> look forward to it every May 31st. Appreciate that. <laughs> all right, Jason Torchinski, thank you so much for uh, joining me here on the show. I appreciate all your time and all the insight. Uh, it was really fascinating, and I guess we can only see where it's going to go from here. Yep, it'll be exciting. Jason, thanks again. Thanks for having me. The book is called Robot Take the Wheel, The Road to Autonomous Cars and the Lost Art of Driving. It is the week of Independence Day, so that means lots and lots of drivers are out there. I've already seen a lot of folks, so just be careful. It's one of the major weekends where folks also drink and drive. So, you look, you, you know it's not right to drink and drive. We, we featured the story, what, last week about the drunk scooter rider? So, it, it's not even good to go drunk scootering. So, look, you, you know that you can get caught. And there's going to be a lot of money lost, and it's going to be an inconvenience if you get caught, or worse, you crash and hurt yourself or somebody else. And and frankly, I need all the listeners I can get. So if you're listening to the show, please just don't don't do it because I don't want to have you sitting in a jail cell somewhere, or even worse, in a hospital, and and you can't have access to your phone, and you can't listen to the program, and you might save a life too. So there's all of that to think about when you're out drinking this week and uh, this weekend especially because there are a lot of people and there's a lot I, I still stuns me when I get these uh, press releases from the Department of Transportation about how many drivers have been cited and arrested for DUI uh, when there is obviously so much education and so much talk about it and and people still drive drunk it's still stunning to me how often it happens and how often people are getting caught and and i'm sure there are only what 10 percent, maybe less of the people who are driving drunk are getting caught and there are still a lot of people out there doing it who aren't getting caught well, maybe eventually they will but please just just don't do it joseph should be back next weekend with that story of his cross-country driving trip so I'm looking forward to hearing some of those adventures. A new driver who is uh, just now, he's a new driver. And so that's why it makes it more interesting because he was driving from New England all the way back to Colorado. Good way to get some miles, but it's also a 
not the most uh, exciting drive, especially when you leave the Midwest. So that should be an interesting story. Anyway, happy Independence Day. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luba, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.